Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek, the best place to buy tickets to games and concerts. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and save $20 off your first purchase using promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of September 17th, 2018. On this week's show, we recap the Baltimore Orioles series. As the White Sox won two out of three, Ronaldo Lopez was great, but Lucas Giolito wasn't. Daniel Polka smashed more home runs, but then smashed his knee into the ground. We'll discuss the impact of those performances and ponder if Avisil Garcia could finally reach the 20 home run mark in a season. We'll answer your questions at P.O. Sox as many of you have ideas for what the White Sox should do for third base in 2019 and beyond. As the season just has two weeks remaining, we have a pretty good grasp on the performance levels for key White Sox prospects. Again, very few thought the White Sox would be a playoff team in 2018 And after how this season has gone, I think even fewer fans think the White Sox will be contenders in 2019. But how have the key prospects performed to expectations? Do we have more clarity on who is going to be a key cog for a successful White Sox ball club? Well, to help shine some light is our best friend of the podcast. He writes for Fangraphs.com. It's Dan Zaborski. And hello, Dan. Thanks for coming on the show again. Hey, Josh, always fun. I'm glad I'm the best friend now. So I, I don't want to catch you calling other people the best friend. Well, <laughs> I'll have to. We better, we, we better get a bracelet with like two parts of the White Sox logo, like a, a White Sox friendship bracelet. Yes, bracelets are in the works. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you wrote the 2018 farewell piece. You're, you're writing one. Every team a team gets eliminated from the postseason. Dan is writing a farewell piece uh, to their 2018 season on Fangraphs. It's been a terrific series. And you wrote about the White Sox last week as they were finally eliminated from postseason contention. Zips projected the White Sox to win 68 games in 2018. And I think the Sox are going to fall short of that mark. 
overall, how do you view the 2018 season for the White Sox, Dan? I think in terms of how the team actually ran, how the organization actually ran the team, I think it was a positive. I think they did have more setbacks in a lot of areas, especially after the last couple of weeks with Michael Kopech. Uh, I think there are more setbacks than they than they happen. I think I mean it's not something you can blame the organization for, but it is unfortunate that I think one of the themes of my piece is that there's not a, as much clarity for some of the players as 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 the White Sox would probably like at this at this point. And let's talk about a couple of those players. You know, one of them is Lucas Giolito. As a whole, if you look at Giolito's season from beginning to end, it's not good, Dan. But he's pitched much, much better in the second half of the year. His first half ERA was 6.18. It's down to 4.98 in the second half, which is better, but it's still not necessarily good. Do we have a better idea about Giolito after the season, or is the jury still out on what kind of pitcher he's going to become? Well, in a way, we have less clarity than we did last year, but it's almost like a good thing because after the first, few months of the season there was a lot more clarity in Giolito and not in a good way uh his his velocity was nothing compared to what it is and it's still down to where he was as a prospect uh but he is pitching better so we've gone from being very negative about Giolito to saying hey you know he's had some bright moments this year it isn't like a, a uniform cycle of just being terrible. There, there have been some games where he just had shown flashes of what made him impressive as a prospect. Uh, but there, there is a lot of uncertainty about Giolito. Now, if, if you look at him and say, are we any more certain about what he can do than we were last year? I'd have to say no. I think it's still very much up in the air what kind of picture Giolito will be for the White Sox. Do you want to guess on what he could be? I mean, I, when we talk about Avisil Garcia last year, that was like a top 1% type of season that Avi had in 2017. Obviously, because of injuries and also just lack of performance, Avi wasn't even close to that in 2018. What does a good Giolito season look like? Uh, well, I, 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 I think it, it depends a lot if he can keep striking out batters the way he has, because it has, he went from like six to nine since the All-Star break. So that, that's an impressive improvement. Uh, he's not the same picture he was. And if he's never going to throw, you know, 98 regularly again, uh, you have to see how well he adjusts to it. And I, I can see him as like a good number two or three starter. Uh, I, I, I don't know if that ace potential that he once had is really there anymore. It, it could still be. I might be too harsh, although I'm probably less harsh than some. Uh, on a pitcher who is, I mean, he just turned 24, and that's still pretty young for a pitcher, you know, pitchers being pitchers. Uh, I, I, I still think he could be a two or three guy, but I'm not really positive about that. He could very we- easily be out of baseball in three years or Oof. something. All right, don't scare me. Let's go off to another yeah, prospect. I don't, I don't mean to scare you too much, but that's just the way pitchers are. <laughs> well, I mean, are. it's true. I mean, he's had Tommy John, so that could always come back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pitchers, you know, we, we had that conversation last week that – when you have five pitchers that are pitching well and they're healthy, that kind of forces the issue and you have to go because you never yeah. know when one of those pitchers, like we learned with Michael Kopech, uh, can not only be out for just your current season, but could be out for all of the next season as well. Uh, and that really screws you over. So uh, hopefully Lucas Giolito, because again, as you mentioned, we saw a little bit of this last year and we're seeing a little bit of 2018, but it's still not put all together, and hopefully his second full year with the White Sox goes much better in 2019. Yohan Mikata is having a disappointing season. He's not a bust. There are many on White Sox Twitter that is saying that Mikata's a bust. 
But his 2018 results are not where we thought they would be, Dan. How far away is Mikado from reaching his ceiling? I, 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 I was, I was pretty optimistic about him in April because he was. I mean, he's still yep. he's he's, de- he's never gonna be a scientific hitter, but he was crushing the ball. He looked like he was gonna be like, you know, the good version of Rugnet Odor, kind of the the mm-hmm. good season Odor, uh, which, which which would stick because he can he can handle second base defensively. His numbers are down a little this year, but I think long term it's expected that he'll be at least respectable at the position. So his struggles since then have just been almost depressing because it just feels like. Like like when we talk about Giolito, I mean, do we know any more about Mankata's upside than we did a year ago at this point? And again, no. I don't think yeah, I don't think we do. And that, that that that's a problem because the White Sox, what they're doing now, they're in the business of learning about players. So a year in which they learn about players, don't learn anything about a player, and the player doesn't develop, that that that's tough. And again, I can't really blame the team, but it's the situation they're in. I, I still think He's he has enough power and enough defense that he'll be a league average player, but you know every year he doesn't finally break out. You know like Javier Baez, who's kind of the uh, you know the best case scenario for that that type of of player, uh, the the very aggressive uh, middle infielder with power. Uh, but every year he's not Javier Baez, then it means he won't be Javier Baez. The, those odds go up. So I'm 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 concerned. I'm not worried. I'm not going to call him a bust if he's a league average player because i mean greg jeffries was called a bust and he did contribute in the majors uh at, at various levels for for a long time so it's not like it's the end of the world if he's just a okay player but i mean it's a little disappointing considering his his potential and who the white Sox gave up to get Mankata. well we, we we should we should probably forget about that as much as we can <laughs> it, it, it just, just some thin scrawny guy yeah you know like gumby i mean who even remembers that guy? <laughs> well, Boston Red Sox fans are are quite happy. No, I mean, it's. I think there's just a lot of pressure on Mikata. There's going to be a lot of more pressure on Mikata in 2019 because Kopech is out. And yeah, yeah, we still don't know on how good of a return the White Sox got for trading away who's probably the most talented pitcher in their franchise history. Yeah, that that was a tough one. Uh, I, I guess... It all comes down to Basabe. What, what what happens with? Oh gosh! Uh, hey, I I just picked up his uh, Winston Salem Dash jersey. I won that in a charity auction. So go, Luis Basabe. Yeah, I, I don't mean to laugh at him, but but I mean he is. I mean he's still on track. He he had a promising season in the minors. He he did very well mm-hmm. for Winston Salem. But you you kind of wanted the whole trade to work out. You don't want him to be the the guy the trade rests on. And Kopech, that was just that was just a knife in the stomach because he was a fun pitcher to watch when he hit the majors. I loved how he went right after batters. He he threw fastballs in just dangerous zones, went right after it, no nibbling. I hate nibbling when when you're a guy like Kopech. But uh, the, the t- see that Tommy John surgery. Uh, I believe I posted the Darth Vader no to Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we uh, we're still heartbroken about that. So. We talked about Giolito, the heartbreak of Kopech's injury, and Mikata's disappointing season. Has anyone impressed you from the White Sox this season? Well, the other Dylan C, Dylan Cease in the minors, has has ha- had a terrific season and, and has really probably moved up in, in, in the organization's view. Uh, but really, I mean, uh, Luis Robert, I like his preferred pronunciation, his, <laughs> his, his, his thumb problems also were disappointing. 
it, it was just a rough season. I mean, even even like someone like Dane Dunning, I mean, now you have worries. So, yeah. This isn't sounding better, Dan. You're supposed to be a little bit more uplifting when I'm asking Nobody, you. Nobody, no, 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 no. <laughs> Nobody ever brings me in to be uplifting. <laughs> I am... I am I am I am the uh, I'm the heel of of all the of pretty much eighty percent of my guest spots. So all right, <laughs> I'm here to make you guys feel bad about yourself, and then I I tell stories about making kids cry at grocery stores that makes everyone hate me. <laughs> well, right now you're just reassuring our deepest darkest fears. Uh, but okay, so 2018 has sucked. Yeah, all White Sox fans know this season has not been good. Yeah, if there was if the players if. All the develop if most I mean obviously not every player you're not going to have every development go smoothly with players it's just not happening right. but to have so many go wrong it's just not what you want to see uh, I mean the, again I don't blame the team itself I don't think the team actually did anything that would cause this it's just it's just unfortunate just you know bad fortune even the best plans can, yep. can destroy so. Moving forward, looking into 2019, you wrote a little bit about this in your piece on Fangraphs. How should the White Sox approach this upcoming offseason? I, I think they're pretty much still in stay-the-course mode because when you look at players that are available in free agency, they're, 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 I mean, they're not going after Manny Machado. I don't think, obviously, if the White Sox wanted to invest in Manny Machado, I'd have no objection to that because he's a player that's so good that you know you're not going to be able to you know develop a better player than Machado there's no one you're going to say uh we have uh Machado's expendable now it's 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 not happening he's a superstar uh I mean same same with Bryce Harper but I mean that's not what the White Sox are going to be in that's not going to be their portion of the market uh I I think one of the problems if you're thinking about spending money is I we still don't really know what the White Sox are going to need when they're good and you can sign like a superstar like I was just talking about and 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 count on them being able to fill it anywhere in, in, in two years or something, but it's, it's much harder when you're talking about kind of the, the middle to bargain class of the market. Uh, and, and it, it, it's risky doing that kind of thing. You look at what the Padres did with Eric Hosmer. They didn't even know if they're going to need a first baseman in a couple years. What if Josh Naylor makes it irrelevant? I mean, they already had Will Myers, uh, but I don't want to get too much into the Padres since it's not a Padres podcast, but, I think that they really have to stay the course because they're they're essentially pot committed at this point. They've committed to this rebuilding, and they they, they still have to see it out. I don't think switching, you know, lanes at this point would really do anything. Uh, so it's probably gonna be another boring off season. But hopefully, 2019 will will be a, a more fun year. Well, we did get a couple of questions in regards to 2019 from our Patreon supporters. The first one's from David. And David's asking you, Dan, given with the lack of development and injuries with various prospects to date, what are the critical mass must-see progress points for the White Sox in 2019 with certain players or prospects to know whether the team will end up with just a potential fluke wildcard playoff year in the future or a lasting multi-year division reign? I, I think you have to start seeing some of these pictures just establish themselves. Uh, you, uh, obviously it's not going to be Kopech, but you have to see Lucas Giolito. You wanted to see him be, at least be a number two or three guy. Uh, you you want to see uh, Ronaldo Lopez have some consistency. Uh, say, same with Dylan Covey, who there's a little bit of optimism there. But you you want to see a healthy season of Carlos Rodon, maybe a, a contract extension, because if you don't extend him, I mean, you're you're auditioning his next paycheck, essentially. 
Uh, I, I think you have to show a sign that some of these pictures are being sorted into a future rotation that can compete. Uh, and if and failing that, I don't think you want to end 2019 with as many questions around the rotation as you end 2018. And I think they had to get Jimenez up as soon as possible. Uh, I, I think you have to challenge a bat like that. You want to challenge your best young players. And I think he's not really being challenged anymore at this point. I think he needs to be in the majors. So June, right? To avoid Super 2. <laughs> all, the, all those check boxes. I, I think at this point, I mean – yeah, they're going to take the extra year, but don't wait till June. They're going to they're going to keep him down until, you know, April 20th or something so they get the 7th year. But just just risk the super 2. Pay him a couple million dollars more one time. It's not that big a deal. I I I don't want to leave him, you know, in in another half year in AAA when he's destroying batters I and mean, pitchers because again, as I say, you have to challenge your top prospects. Uh, it, what's he going to learn at AAA if he hits eight, if he slugs seven hundred instead of six hundred? Well, didn't you hear Rick Hahn? He has to work on his defense. <laughs> Come on, Dan. That, see, that's one of those things where <laughs> where teams can't admit that's why they do it, <laughs> so they have to have plausible reasons. And see, they're not being completely honest, and we know they're not being completely honest, and they know that we know they can. That, that we're not completely honest. And we know that they know that we're not completely honest. It's just, it's just how the game is played. Uh, I, I don't know how to fix it in, in the next collective bargaining agreement because it is – I don't think it's great for baseball when you have service time games. But I'm not really sure exactly how you deal with it because there will always be some kind of line that's drawn and, and teams will find an advantage of waiting just over that line. So I'm not sure how you fix it, but I, I – just on a general concept, I don't think philosophically it's good for baseball. I think seeing Jimenez in the majors would have been good for the White Sox fans and good for the organization. But even if they're not supposed to be playing service time games, the benefits to that are so great that it's hard to to get too angry with them because every other team is doing it. And I think it's something that has to be fixed by collective bargaining agreement, not teams just you know going against self-interest. Well, I mean, if you're going to... Gain that extra year, might as well save that five to ten million dollars too, and wait until mid June. No, I'm being sarcastic. Well, or wait a whole other year. Yeah, why not? And then have <laughs> why year. not? Let's just just wait until you're if actually you wait, good. <laughs> if you wait three years, then they'll have him for ten years past this point. Wow, why not? <laughs> I hope the Knights win some International League titles, man. And, and here's the, here's the other thing: if you never call him up. You don't have to pay him anything. Think Whoa. of the savings. I know. Man, that's really smart business thinking, Dan. Really yeah, smart. I, I went to Jeff Loria Business School. <laughs> uh, continuing the topic about Aloy Jimenez, in your Fangraphs piece, you gave us a big tease. You posted a seven-year outlook on Zip's projections for Aloy Jimenez. And it, get, it got me pumped up because you're just looking at the hitting splits and – you're looking at a hitter that could be having on-base percentage of 340, consistently hitting. This is a middle of the type, uh, middle of the order type bat that could replace maybe Jose Abreu if Abreu leaves the White Sox after the 2019 season. But of course, there are White Sox fans that look at the WAR totals, Dan, and say that's not good enough. Eloy Jimenez, a three-win player, is not good enough. He needs to be better than that. 
Well, remember, we're talking about a player who's still very young. He's not certain to hit these things. So there's, there is uncertainty. I know people don't like to think that because he's such a great hitter, but there is uncertainty around players like that. And there is also his glove. Uh, I mean, the glove is concerned. I don't think that playing for a month in nowhere is going to improve his glove. But uh, I, 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 his glove could be better because the projections are a little negative on it because the very rudimentary minor league data isn't that great for him. Uh, if he turned out to have, like I say, a league average glove at first or, or outfield or wherever he ends up in the long distant future, those wars jump pretty quickly. And also, you know, it's conservative with playing time. You, you can add another, you know, 15% just from like playing 158 games or something. So, you know, projections are conservative by nature because Good players have big downsides because uh, you have a guy that plays 150 games a year. There's a lot more things that will make him play 50 fewer games than that will make the player play 50 more games because the season isn't 200 games long, you know. Just tell Zips that I am very happy. Skewness of risk. Yeah, you shouldn't be mad at the – I mean, you're talking about a guy who has a mean projection already of a 900 OPS. (laughs) If you complain about that – you are greedy. You are like a kid in Willy Wonka, and you're going to be turned into a giant blueberry. I don't, I don't know if blueberries are relevant, like a giant hot dog. Hmm. And then the Oompa Loompas will eat you while singing a merry song. Hmm. Creepy. Our our next fan question that we had comes from Greg, and uh, this is a pretty good question. Who will make it to the major leagues first? The 2017 first round pick Jake Berger or 2018 first round pick Nick Madrigal? Hmm. I don't know. Cause I mean, you know, Berger, uh, <laughs> Berger had such a setback this year. Uh, just a bit. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it, it, it could very well be, it could very well be Madrigal just because of, you know, injuries. Uh, I mean, you look at Berger, and I mean, there's still some uncertainty whether he will play third base in the majors. And I think you add in some position uncertainty along with injury uncertainty, uh, it, it might take a little longer. But that, but he could come back, tear through the minors with his bat, and we don't worry about the glove uh, because they can always stick him at DH. Uh, oh, we'll see. I, I I think that generally speaking, take the healthy player who also has. I wouldn't say a definite position, but a more definite one. All right. I agree with you. I think Magical will beat Berger to the major leagues. So that wraps up my questions as far as the White Sox. Take a look at the Major League Baseball postseason race. I have three questions for you. One, the National League West. This is a big week for the Rockies starting on Monday where they have a three-game series against the Dodgers and they have another weekend series against the Arizona Diamondbacks that – could provide some clarity in the National League West, or it can make the waters really muddy. Uh, do you think Colorado can outlast the Dodgers and D-backs, or do you think the Dodgers or D-backs are going to win this division? Well, I, th- I think that th- well, I think the Diamondbacks are rapidly running into math problem. Okay, uh, because they're two games behind the Dodgers, three and a half behind the Rockies, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're only talking about like seventeen, I think it's seventeen, sixteen, seventeen games. That that's pretty significant because the other team playing when you have sixteen games left, you need to make up more than three. When a team is going eight and eight, all of a sudden you have to go eleven and five, which is I mean not possible. It happens all the time, but it's 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 a challenging scenario when you have to go eleven and five to to survive. Uh, and even more for the Rockies, if the Rockies go eight and eight, they need to go like 
twelve and four or thirteen and three to 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 win the division. So that that is tough for Arizona. I still think the Dodgers are the better team than the Rockies, and I've been saying that all year. And of course, the Dodgers have the best run differential in the National League, but at some point they have to actually win the games uh, because they don't. Uh, until I'm the dictator of baseball, they don't rank teams by Dan predicted wins or Dan. Hmm estimated wins they rank rank by actual wins so even if they're playing in desmond and gerardo Pada, for for mysterious reasons the rockies have won games they won on the back of some of their front end pitching uh freeland actually has an nl Cy young argument he's he's not going to get it i don't think but he has an actual case which is a lot of fun uh, mm-hmm. i i think the, i think the dodgers squeeze it out but the rockies have enough of an edge that it's 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 up in the air the National League Central, there are a lot of people in Chicago, especially if you're listening to sports radio, that are somewhat panicking about the Chicago Cubs, especially after this last series against the Milwaukee Brewers when the Brewers cut the lead down to one. And the Cardinals are right there as well. You have three teams that have the best records in the National League in one division. Uh, again, we saw this in, what, 2015 with the Cardinals, Pirates, and Chicago Cubs I don't know why fans are panicking about the Cubs because the Cubs have more talent than the Brewers and the Cardinals. But are the Cubs in hot water, Dan, in losing their grip on the division? I, I think that that fans are getting a little too excited about the team with the best record in the National League. Uh, I, I think that that's 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 a definite of like first world baseball problems <laughs> when you're when you're when your team has the most run uh, wins in your league i mean obviously not the al though there are plenty of there are actually few teams with better with better records in the al but the cubs are at the top of the division they have a one game edge as we as we as we discuss and yeah you'd like a, a larger cushion but you know they do have the math over the cardinals and they do have a better roster than the brewers now over when we talk again 16 17 games the best roster doesn't necessarily win the most games but it's who you bet on and if the Cubs don't win the Central, they're certainly going to win a wild card. I don't see them falling that far off. They'd have to literally drop off, I think, five games to not win a wild card, uh, which, which kind of disappointing because I was kind of rooting for the eight-team tie and, and, and MLB because mm. I'm on Team Entropy. I wanted to see that eight-team tie, and, and MLB failed to figure out what to do. <laughs> and then finally in the American League, we do have a – we do have a race, and that's the Oakland A's and the New York Yankees. Who do you think hosts that one-game wild-card playoff between the A's and the Yankees? I think the Yankees will pull it off. Uh, again, we were talking about the same things. It's it's pretty close since there's only a game separating them. But I think the Yankees have the better roster. And obviously it's not the long term, but it's still where to bet. And, of course, I wouldn't be surprised if Oakland got to host the wild card. It's because, you know, a lot of uncertainty in baseball. But I think the Yankees are a little, just a, are a little bit better than the A's. Yeah, it's just been a terrific story for the Oakland A's. Oh, yeah, I love the story of the A's. And the, the way they've cobbled together their pitching staff this year, because they, they've lost like five pitchers due to injury. They don't have like anyone they started the season with. Right. They're, they're getting – They've gotten 14 good starts from Edwin Jackson. <laughs> I know. And Mike Fierce. Yeah, but, but Edwin Jackson, it, I he's, <laughs> you would see him start with the A's, and you're like, oh, my God, he's still in baseball. Yeah. Uh, now, the weird thing about uh, Edwin Jackson is he just turned 35. Oh, man. 
he should be like 15 years older than that. <laughs> it feels see. like I saw him in the 80s. I know. But that couldn't have happened because he would have been six. And and there haven't been any six-year-olds in, in the majors. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe six-year-old Mike Trout could have played in the majors. But maybe. other than that, it, it, it's very surprising that he's not that young. Um, John Garland's like that too because John Garland yeah. is still in his 30s. Yeah, he tried. I think last year, the year before, he threw a bullpen with the White Sox to see if he can – Mount a comeback into the major leagues. Clearly, that bullpen must have not went well because <laughs> uh, he, he didn't mount another comeback. But, yeah, uh, Edwin Jackson, game two starter. If the, uh, maybe game one starter if the Athletics win that one-game playoff against the Yankees. But, but no, you when, when you're getting this from Edwin Jackson, and, I mean, he's injured again, but they did get 13 starts from Brett Anderson. <laughs> yeah. But but they have they have pieced together a pretty impressive season, uh, considering that it's it's not the deepest talented teams. There's not a lot of players you look at and you think about them in all star territory. Uh, Matt Chapman certainly is, but he's underappreciated quite a bit. And of course, Chris Davis is kind of what's keeping us from a JD Martinez triple crown, which I'm I'm rooting for because I don't think JD Martinez should be the AL MVP. And I'm going to get really annoyed when Trout or Betts or Ramirez doesn't win it because J.D. Martinez won a triple crown. But hopefully that doesn't happen. You can follow Dan on Twitter. He's at DZaborski. Read his excellent work, of course, on Fangraphs.com and join in his weekly chats Monday, right? Your weekly chats are on Monday? Yes, I am on Monday. I'm back to noon uh, <laughs> with Travis Sawchick moving on to 538. I've seized back my time slot. Well, congratulations. So that's 11 a.m. Central Time, I assume. 12 p.m. Eastern yes. Time. Yeah, I always forget your Central Time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can, Weirdos. In Dan's weekly chats, they mostly discuss baseball. It does get weird, I have to warn you. Um, but you can participate in those weekly chats on Monday on Fangraphs.com. Dan, as always, thanks for coming on the show. Always fun. Thanks for having me on. A quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of sites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. By searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value, SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports, concerts, to comedy, and theater. And I use SeatGeek on my phone all of the time, especially buying tickets to Chicago White Sox games because I've always find it to be the best place to get the most bang for my buck to find great seats at a great rate. And the best part is Sox Machine listeners get to save $20 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and use promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE to save $20 off your first purchase. SeatGeek. Life's an event. We have the tickets. 
Now joining me to recap the action this past weekend in Baltimore is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Lucky for White Sox fans, the team came through with a series win against the worst team in Major League Baseball. Yes, you know, on the whole, the week was disappointing, you know, going, uh, you know, facing the two worst teams in the American League, the two of the teams ahead of the White Sox in the draft order, kind of hope for better than three and three, but on the other hand, it is the road, it is against teams they've struggled against in the past, especially the Orioles, first series win, season series win against them since 2008, you know, it's been, especially Oriole Park has been kind of a house of horrors for them, an underrated one, so... Yeah, any kind of season series win, even against a team as bad as the Orioles, is something to at least be acknowledged, if not if you know outright celebrated. And for those that didn't catch the action this weekend, the White Sox won games one and two. Game one, the White Sox had a comfortable lead; they were up seven to two. But Aaron Bummer had struggles, and Ian Hamilton was able to get out of that jam. And thanks to Ryan Cordell, his first base hit in the Major League career, a solo shot, the White Sox were able to win 8-6 to six, as that game was a lot tighter than was expected, especially in how well the White Sox started that game. In Game 2, Ronaldo Lopez pitched a gem as the White Sox shut out the Baltimore Orioles 2 to nothing, And in Game 3, Lucas Giolito laid an egg, and the Orioles won. Eight to four, and we'll talk about Daniel Polko's multi-home run game that he hit on Sunday. And there was a lot of home runs, and offensively, the White Sox looked a lot better. But I think the conversation from this weekend begins with how well Ronaldo Lopez looked. And we've already talked about Lucas Giolito in great length on this show with Dan Zaborski earlier. With us still not having clarity on Giolito's future as far as what type of pitcher is going to be and how useful he's going to be for a future White Sox contending team. But with Ronaldo Lopez, Jim, James Fegan of The Athletic tweeted out after his start, in his last five starts, which spans over almost 33 innings, he's only allowed 19 hits, only four earned runs, and 35 strikeouts. What's helped Lopez turn the corner? Well, I guess to acknowledge the thing he can't control, uh, uh, strength of schedule plays into it. The Angels and Yankees are legit, but he's faced the Tigers twice, and he's faced the Orioles once, and they have the two worst offenses in the American League. So, you know, with Lopez and given his struggles before against any kind of opponent and, you know, that he's in a stage of his career where he can't take anybody for granted, you know, you don't write those off and say that they're meaningless, but I think, you know, they do help towards the end of posting some impressive numbers. But I, I think when it comes to Lopez, you know, the changeup's improved, and then even in a start against Baltimore, changeup wasn't great, but the slider was there. And when it comes to his stuff, you know, the fastball velocity, I think, has been probably the most impressive thing about him all season long, his ability to maintain 95, 96, 97 into the late innings. He's got that going for him. So it's a good foundation. You know, the problem with Lopez is having three pitches, and it's not so much as we saw this last time out. It's not so much having all three pitches working in one game. It's more a matter of having a second pitch to go to if one isn't working. And as recently, you know, he's been very good with the changeup. That's really improved for him. This last time out against Baltimore, didn't really have the great changeup, but the slider was there. And so he's kind of able to toggle secondary pitches from changeup to slider. And, you know, he was able to snap off a great one. Like when he was really pressed into 
a stressful situation in the seventh inning. He really didn't have much in the way of, you know, I guess pressure pitches, but you know, he had a prolonged battle with Tim Beckham, I believe. A nine-pitch battle, following off fastballs, changeup didn't work. Um, you know, trying to get him out with the straightforward. You know, throwing fastballs for strikes with the full count, and then ninth pitch, full count. Runners on first and second, one out. Throws a perfect slider. You know, gets a swing over the top of it. Lopez, you know, punches his glove in celebration, uh, even though he's got one more out to go. And it was just, I think, that kind of moment for him where you know, pressure pitch finds that secondary pitch uh, and executes it even when he pitch counts in the 90s. I think that's the kind of, you know, moment, you know, he's been wanting, you know, all season long to have that kind of secondary execution. And I think that's really been, you know, whether it's been the changeup or slider or in some cases both, you know, he's had those pitches working to take that stress off his fastball when he needs it. Why did Giolito struggle so much? Is it just first inning jitters again or was it something that caught your eye? Well, no, I mean, the defense was terrible in the first inning. He sure. had to record, I think, six outs, seven outs. Um, you know, you know, there wasn't really much in the way of hard contact. The double was, I guess, well hit, but also just out of the reach of a diving Delmonico, you know, beating the outfield alignment. Um, you know, so that that was a bad way to start. But, you know, the bunt should have been, you know, Castillo should have gotten out in the bunt. Uh, Moncada should have gotten an out on a fielder's choice he tried to make. Davidson booted a ball. Um, you know, there was a flare single out to right. There was a slash single on the fake bunt attempt. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of weird stuff going for him, and he kept throwing strikes. He kept filling up the zone. Uh, the pitch count was pretty reasonable for as many batters as he faced, but he just got no help whatsoever. Didn't settle in, and I think, you know, so I think, yeah, and then later in the game, Rondon missed a pop-up uh, thanks to the sun. Um, you know, Moncada didn't come up with a sliding play that he probably should have made or, you know, other second baseman would have made. So the defense just wasn't there for him. Palka, uh, well, Palka was later in the game against uh, with Ryan Burr on the mound, I believe. But, you know, the defense was just awful all game. So I think that's you know, one thing Giolito does not need. But, you know, part of the reason Giolito can't, you know, or has trouble pitching past that, especially early, is that he just didn't get much in the way of swinging strikes. The uh, curveball wasn't really effective in that regard, the changeup. Uh, and I think there are some parallels there with Lopez that, uh, you know, Giolito, when he's really good, the changeup is good. When he's not good, the changeup is non-existent. Didn't really have it working for him. I think he got only four swinging strikes and none were on the curveball or changeup. And so, you know, when you're facing an offense as bad as Baltimore's, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing where you give Lopez the nod for, even if it's a bad team, pitching very well against a bad team because some guys don't. And Giolito left himself open to be susceptible to bad luck just by not getting those swinging strikes. Moving over to the offense again, as I mentioned before, the White Sox scored 14 runs over the weekend. A lot of home runs. Yohan Mikata had some good games But Daniel Polka sets a new club record for a left-handed rookie for the most home runs in a season. He now has 24 home runs in 2018 and in a way has a commanding lead for the home run title uh, for the ball club in 2018. And Jim... Unfortunately, he was trying to make a sliding catch in Game 3 in the bottom of the 8th inning, and it just looked like his leg got stuck. Uh, His right leg, as far as his knee, got stuck in the turf, left a big divot out in right field uh, (laughs) that needed to be patched up. Daniel Polka was removed from the game, and the White Sox tweeted that it's a jammed right knee and that he is day-to-day. Now, it would just be 
totally 2018 if we find out that Daniel Polka's season's over uh, because of a leg injury, because why not? We can't enjoy things. Uh, but with Polka moving forward, because, you know, the conversation we had with Dan Zaborski earlier in the show about the future White Sox and how far away that they're still from contending, are we seeing signs that he's more than just a masher? Not quite, um, but given his inexperience at the major league level, this is his first go around. And for a guy without a sterling minor league track record, and part of that was injuries, and part of it's just not having a position, uh, going through a couple organizations, you know, he never really had the kind of uh, you know ascent that a top prospect has. So that he's having this kind of season where he's producing. Homers, uh, obviously the most valuable hit, so even if he's hitting for a low average, the frequency, the power with which he hits them shows there's, you know, something there. And I think, you know, given a full year of experience, you know, it gives him something to work on in the winter, you know, as he kind of goes through his to-do list, preparing, preparing for next season, preparing for a season, having less to prove in spring training. You know, he's a guy I give some benefit of the doubt to, or at least want to see more from. You know, think that there's an opening for further improvement, better bat-to-ball skills, better pitch-tracking skills, maybe a little bit better discipline. I think discipline is something that doesn't quite, um, you know, you can't count on that, <laughs> I guess, uh, improving with reps as we've seen from with, uh, you know, guys like Tim Anderson and so forth, where if you're aggressive, you're aggressive, and you know, there's only going to be so many pitches you're going to lay off of just by reps alone. But I think with Palka, you know, he's been so strong and he's got the kind of easy strength you know he just flicked that homer out to left field basically at 108 miles per hour and you know he just took it the other way and I think you know if he trusts his strength a bit more and maybe throttles down a little bit he can still hit homers with that so you know perhaps when the season's done and he you know I guess you know looks at what he did he looks at the video um you know hits the cages and tries to you know figure out how to make a little bit more consistent contact or maybe a little bit more situational contact. Um, you know, perhaps there is a little bit more growth there and a little bit more well-rounded of a hitter, even if he's not going to be like a uh, 300, 400, 500 guy. If he can hit at least like 250, 260, you know, get the OBP up to 300, the raw power is there to where he can really be a handful in platoon situations and bench situations. And, you know, there's something there. Avi had two home runs this weekend, Jim. He ties a career high for a season with 18 home runs for years. For years on this show, we've been hoping that Avi would reach the 20 home run mark in a season. And quite frankly, hitting 20 home runs in a season isn't a whole lot. And it's pretty disappointing for a player built like Avisil Garcia, not ever achieving this is this the year does he have enough in the tank and is there enough games remaining for him to finally reach 20 home runs in a season I'm gonna say yeah I'm gonna say with you know Brayu looking a bit wobbly I think he's 0 for 20 now over his last five games uh, just coming back from that surgery with uh, you know Polka looking you know I guess he's day-to-day he said he'll be back Tuesday players tend to overestimate their um, I guess uh, you try to talk themselves past an injury so maybe Tuesday is a bit um, optimistic but with him out Davidson was battling a sore calf you know I think there will be at bats around and you know he still got the pull power he still has the you know the, the homer he hit was on a slider off the plate which was really impressive just how he got around on that and kept that fair He's got the home run stroke. It's just the the other parts that are kind of lacking. The defense isn't there. The uh, you know, the 
over-aggressiveness with runners in scoring position has kind of plagued him all season long, but the home run stroke is there, so I think he can get two more before the season's over. Ryan Cordell, his first hit was a home run in his major league career, uh, but he hasn't been able to do much else, especially offensively. What are your thoughts about his abilities in the major league level now, Jim, after a few games watching him? So far, you know, it's not, you know, I, I don't really see anything that stands out. I, I don't think his defense in center field is, you know, he's not like an everyday center fielder. He doesn't bring a kind of plus glove there. And, you know, there it's a big, you know, he's a big guy, long levers. You know, I think there's a big strike zone. And so I think there can be, you know, holes in the swing and holes in the zone. So, uh, you know, he did have the injury, the, uh, you know, well, he had the fractured back last year. He had the uh, broken collarbone uh, in April this year. So I think it's been a rough go for him so I wouldn't expect him necessarily to come to the majors and excel so you know I guess it depends on what the White Sox expectations for him are um, you know it could be one of two things it could be trying to see what he's got left before some 40-man maneuvering and if he doesn't you know if he's you know, if say this homer is the only one he comes up with and you know doesn't you know, he ends up having like a Jacob May type line you know, perhaps he meets a Jacob May type fate where they outright him um, and he doesn't quite get a second chance. On the other hand, you know, if they just want to use this month to get more reps, um, you know, to, to make up for what he didn't have in April, and then when spring rolls around, it's a clean slate, you know, I can see that being the case too. So I really don't know what the White Sox have planned for him, and uh, I'm inclined to give him, you know, I guess some benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, you know, given that he's 26, uh, you know, 27 next year it seems like you know, he's going to be running out of time for you know the physical skills especially having iffy center field defense you know to meet his uh offensive skills to kind of come up with a compelling bench you know i guess bench role bench player fourth outfielder type thing that concludes as far as recapping the series against the baltimore orioles for those that are concerned about the chicago white Sox draft position uh the baltimore orioles I don't know how this magic number will work. They have a nine-game lead now over the Royals on having the number one pick. And I think there are just 13 games remaining. So the magic number for the Orioles to have the number one pick in the 2019 Major League Baseball draft uh, is four games. Uh, The Royals are currently at the number two spot. Again, nine nine games ahead of the Orioles overall for best record. They have 97 losses. The Miami Marlins are now one game ahead of the White Sox. The Marlins would have pick number three. They are 58 and 91. The White Sox are 59 and 90. They are slotted in the fourth pick overall as the San Diego Padres are 60 and 90. So the White Sox and Padres have the same loss amount. And the White Sox are just two games back of the Detroit Tigers, who are 61 and 88. So for those that are like me, hoping that the White Sox can overtake the Tigers in the American League Central standings, uh, there's still an opportunity. But again, there's just 13 games remaining in the 2018 season. uh, And the White Sox looking at their schedule and no better time than now to preview the upcoming series. It is a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday series as the White Sox go from Baltimore to the American League Central champion, Cleveland Indians. Jim, I'm a bit shocked that it took into mid-September for the Indians to clinch the division. Uh, I think everybody knew mid-April that the Indians were going to win the AL Central. Uh, so congratulations, of course, to them. That's three years in a row, I believe. Yes, three years in a row. 
And your pitching probables for this series, starting on Tuesday, again, White Sox have Monday off, it is Carlos Rodon against Corey Kluber. On Wednesday, it is Dylan Covey against Carlos Carrasco. And on Thursday, it is James Shields against Josh Tomlin. Now, there is the one race, Jim, hoping that the White Sox can maybe catch the Tigers. Well, the problem with that is, is that the White Sox still have six games remaining <laughs> against the Indians. And they also have three games this upcoming weekend uh, where they'll be at home against the Chicago Cubs. And those games will mean a lot for the Cubs where the games really don't mean a whole lot for the White Sox. That's nine tough games. And there's still an opportunity for the White Sox to reach 100 losses. They just have to win four out of their last 13 to avoid a 100-loss season. Looking at this series, again, it is a tough series. Cleveland has been terrible to the White Sox, uh, especially, I don't know, since we've ever started this show for at least five years. Uh, what are you hoping to see from this series for the White Sox? Well, I'd like to see uh, Carlos Rodon throw strikes, you know, get back to showing some better command or at least control. I think even with a guy like Rodon with this stuff, he doesn't need pinpoint command to be effective. He can, you know, get by with some mistakes just because he, you know, with, with the slider and the how hard he throws it, how hard it breaks. Uh, it's a slider many hitters don't see oftentimes in the season. So I think he can get by with just being a good control pitcher, if not uh, somebody who's that precise. But otherwise, you know, it's, it's going to be tough for, uh, I like to see a, a Breu get rolling again. I think He's had it tough without any rehab games, learning on the fly, but uh, it'd be nice to see him get to 25 homers and, and not see his numbers drag too far down because of a freak medical condition. Uh, after that, I, I'm hoping that, you know, between either this week or the next week with the Indians, that, you know, given that they don't have anything to play for with positioning, you know, they've already clinched the central. They're not going to catch either the West or the East when it comes to record. So they're playing for a home field advantage against the wildcard team or like, you know, at, at most and that's it. Um, but when it comes to, you know, uh, I guess their October <laughs> plans, I think it's more a matter of probably, you know, maybe not going all out with a guy like Corey Kluber trying to you know keep his pitch count reasonable and, and, not have to uh, work them too hard over the 200 innings marks, and same thing. Clevenger, who might be uh, you know pitching more than they ever has, uh, Carrasco, same thing. I, th I think they're probably keeping October in mind, so I wouldn't mind seeing some five inning starts from these guys, and maybe having the White Sox have some cracks against the more vulnerable members of the Indians bullpen. Maybe that's how they get those four wins. So when it comes to the Indians and their 83 and 66 record. They're a half game ahead overall record of the Tampa Bay Rays. The Rays are 82 and 66. But <laughs> uh, when you obviously have the three division tier and with the Red Sox at 103 wins and the Yankees at 91 wins, uh, the Rays are a very distant third in the American League East. When you do have this situation that you have an Indians team that has what – the third seed locked up, as you mentioned, Jim. They're not going to catch the Astros. They're not going to pass them up. Uh, and they cannot catch the Red Sox. It's just not enough games left. Do you think that this is going to be something we're going to talk about after the year? That if Tampa Bay realistically finishes with a better record than the Cleveland Indians this season, that 
maybe voices will be louder to either reduce the amount of divisions in the leagues from three to two, like it used to be, or expand the divisions from three to four. I don't think so. I think any four-division um, approach will come when they expand to 32 teams. I think that's what that... <laughs> I, I think ultimately baseball would love to have two 16-team leagues, four-team divisions, and make it real easy like that. But I think when it comes to the East and the Central and, and, and the way that's kind of stacking up, I think it would take maybe multiple years of that happening. I don't know if one freak series of outcomes where you have this lopsided situation really makes that much of a difference, especially maybe if it were like, say, the uh, Yankees or Red Sox getting screwed out of a a postseason appearance, maybe then the voices would be louder, they'd be missing out on the ratings, but, you know, the Rays, I don't think, move the needle that much to where it gets people talking about it. I think it's just more a matter of, like, well, the Rays were, you know, down for a while, they just got hot later after they had already started selling off. They have nobody to blame but themselves and being a um, small market team that plays really small market because of their ownership. Um, and, and maybe they're not the best uh, case for being uh, sympathy drivers, but I think for a team maybe gunning for it more, maybe you'd hear more <laughs> and maybe a team with a more uh, bigger fan base and bigger footprint, maybe, you know, then you'd have uh, a louder call for it. But no, I think it would take multiple years of the divisions looking screwy in order for, any kind of alignment or greater thinking to happen. Yeah, the Seattle Mariners are 82 and 67. So there is a real chance that the Cleveland Indians, being the American League number three seed, the American League Central Division champions, will have the seventh best record in the American League. Yeah. That's how big of a dumpster <laughs> fire the American League Central has been and a little bit disappointing and I brought it up all year but if you're a Minnesota Twins fan man like the amount of talent that that team had at the beginning of the season if we knew that this is where the Indians would have been at this moment Jim on September 17th I would have said in April well they are very vulnerable then that yeah a team could surprise and somebody outside of Cleveland could win the American League Central and they would have made me look like an idiot because uh, nobody's even close to the Indians in the division. I guess it is all about luck. So if you're an Indians fan, appreciate the third straight divisional title. Appreciate the fact that the Indians still have six games remaining against the White Sox. And Tampa Bay Rays and Seattle Mariners fans, I guess you guys draw the short end of the stick. That's what you get for beating divisions with the New York Yankees, Boston Red Sox, and the Houston Astros, and the Oakland Athletics. But I bet, Jim, this is going to be something people are going to be writing about after the season when they notice that Cleveland will have the seventh best record in the American League. And two teams that had a better regular season record are not going to the postseason, but the Indians are. Yeah, I think it's going to be just more. I think at least at this point, it's going to be, boy, like this was a historically bad division this year. I think that's kind of where it will start and stop. There will be, you know, um, you, you know, the, the reactions you described to where, you know, that talking about who deserves it and what. And we know that, uh, you know, we with the rules say who deserves it. And it's whoever wins the division plus uh, two more teams. And that's just the way it happens to shake out. But I think right now, and, and you mentioned the, the Central and that the Twins blew it and, 
you know, their rebuild is, you know, this should have been the year where kind of crested for them and they've gotten, they've let in some situations get away from them. And, you know, even though the White Sox have struggled, I still think it's in their interest to keep pushing and make themselves uh, available for <laughs> the Twins slipping. And maybe they can, you know, given that the Tigers are rebuilding, the Royals are rebuilding, and, and even earlier in the rebuild than the White Sox are, seems to still make sense for the White Sox to be a team adding and trying to improve and just making themselves available for second place should the similar set of circumstances happen again to where the Twins are just uh, um, have horrible luck, horrible health, horrible health management, and uh, they just leave an opening and a void. Well, that will do it for the preview of the Cleveland Indians series. We will be recapping that Indians series this upcoming Thursday as that series concludes and, of course, preview the Chicago Cubs-White Sox series this upcoming weekend on Sox Machine Live. But coming up next on the podcast, it's your guys' questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, or posting your questions by supporting us on patreon.com slash Sox Machine by becoming a friend of the podcast. And to answer your questions, of course, is Jim Margulis. And Jim, the first question we have is from Russell the K9. And Russell is asking a question about a very controversial player right now in Major League Baseball. And that's Josh Donaldson. And Russell's asking, has Josh Donaldson's value fallen enough to accept a one-year deal? If so, any chance the White Sox pay whatever it takes? If not... Does Yomer get the position for another year? I don't know. I don't know what Donaldson is exactly, you know, the situation around him is. There's been so much uh, written about him, about, uh, you know, his demands, about what, uh, you know, the Blue Jays and uh, Donaldson talked about in terms of extensions, about possible trades in the offseason. There's been so much noise circling around him that I don't know what to make of it. And I'm watching him with interest, you know, as he uh, plays with the Indians to try to figure out what he has left, what he has to offer going into the offseason. You know, it's a weird situation for him because I think he's 32. And so he's not, uh, he's on the older side for uh, a guy hitting free agency for the first time. He's had all these injuries and his status has been so mysterious that it does seem like, you know, he could be somebody who, you know, whose market takes a long time to form. And I think the White Sox, you know, if they can somehow assign him to a one-year deal, uh, it would be, I think, a good year spent just because we know that Yolmer, uh, you know, playing every day at third base is not, you know, he's, he can start there for a couple weeks, you know, if you need him to fill in for an injury, but he's not going to be plan A for third base. So, uh, it's been a good use for, of this season, knowing Yolmer's limitations and, and, and understanding that he's really a great fill-in around the infield, maybe not a great starter at third. So a guy like Donaldson, you know, kind of high risk, high reward. We know what he can deliver when he's fully healthy. Don't know if he's fully healthy. Maybe he likes the White Sox training staff and their reputation, even if their numbers have taken a hit over the last few years. Maybe they still have the reputation of being a great place for players with injuries to go. You know, maybe it's a fit. Um, but given that he's on the older side, I can see him 
maybe still wanting to cash in for multiple years because given the free agent landscape for guys in their 30s, getting another year older isn't probably going to improve his market all that much, even if he has a nice bounce back year. So I can see him trying to hold out for, you know, some kind of multiple year deal, some kind of opt out, maybe, you know, team language or player language that allows him some flexibility mm-hmm. in getting a bigger payoff. But, you know, for a team wanting one year, you know, maybe he'd rather go to a team, you know, given that he has his reputation, seems like he could probably find a one-year taker for a team contending uh, that, you know, is a better showcase for his skills. So it seems unlikely, and I think that the, uh, you know, I would like to see the White Sox pursue him as long as, you know, they deem him healthy, and he's not just, you know, a guy who's going to play 40 games a year and be a mess for those 40 games, which is within the realm of possibility. But uh, another question in our mailbag, I think, offers another possibility for the position. Yes, and let's go to the next question. Russell, thank you so much for your question. The next question is from Bill Wiggins. Bill's asking, I imagine that Nick Magical will be the White Sox second baseman in early 2020, so wouldn't spring training be a good time to move Mankata to third, and Sanchez can play second base until Magical arrives, or Yoan could attempt to learn center field? It's possible. Um, yeah, I think with Magical and with the White Sox not really going to be pushing for 2019, I don't think you have to necessarily introduce a position change this early. Um, you know, Magical's performance in uh, you know, in the minors this year wasn't wasn't terribly impressive, and it's you know a long season for him. He had the wrist injury, not going to be somebody who hits with tremendous power anyway. So you know, add it all up, and you know he's got a high floor, but also you know can be susceptible to having you know a lot of singles and nothing else, and you know, you wonder what the big deal is. So I think for him entering his first pro season, I don't think uh, the, you know maybe it's in the White Sox interest to move a guy from second base to third base and clear a position for Madrigal when, you know, it's not clear exactly what his timetable is. You know, 2020 seems reasonable, but could be 2021 and that's fine. Um, but I don't know if the White Sox move, you know, set the, I guess, mechanisms in order to put pressure on him when he's still going to be going through his first full pro season. So that seems a bit premature, but I kind of have that in the back of my mind where Moncada is not going to be at second base and, Either third base seems like a better fit for a skill set or center field, like Bill mentioned, and both of those could be open. Um, but I think for the time being, you know, given that Machado is there and I think the White Sox, you know, it's in their interest to make a run at Machado, even, you know, if we might laugh at it, dismiss it. He fits. Um, it is what the White Sox fan base needs. And it's not, you know, just throwing him a bone, but it's just, you know, Machado fits for the White Sox like he fits for a lot of teams. And the White Sox shouldn't count themselves out even if it seems unlikely. Uh, but, you know, Machado Donaldson's another one we just talked about. But after that, you know, if they are looking for a third baseman full, uh, you know, maybe you throw Jose Rondon there, see what his power is. Uh, you know, give him some more uh, plate appearances there at third base. While Mancada, you just let him try to settle in with his approach at the position he's most familiar with. But I think maybe at the end of the 2019 season, as you start knowing what Madrigal's going to offer, you know what Rondon has, you know uh, – what the third baseman landscape looks like with Arenado perhaps becoming available, you know, then you start thinking about third base for Moncada and that seems like a more reasonable time. You know, if they moved him earlier, I, I think that wouldn't be terrible, but you know, given that Madrigal, we still don't exactly know what his timetable is or can really put a firm one on it, whether it's 2020, the end of 2020, early 2021, uh, 
probably still makes sense to try to make Moncada, you know, I guess make it as simple as him for possible, as simple for him as possible, uh, just getting his full game in working order. Yeah, let's see what Nick Madrigal can do in Birmingham before saying that there's a re- there's a chance we could see him in 2020. I like to see what he can do at the AA level because if he struggles, then I think that shelves this conversation. But now that we've someone suggested that Yohan Mikado go play center field, it's not a new suggestion. But the way that Tim Anderson's been playing defense, Jim, now we will see Yohan Mikado become a Gold Glover at second base. I'm kidding. That <laughs> uh, <laughs> just seems to be as far as uh, the reverse jinx because we talk so much about Tim Anderson possibly being a future center fielder for the White Sox. Well, I didn't. Well, I know you didn't. <laughs> I believed we, him all along. <laughs> yeah. We, we, but we've had that discussion yes, on the show. Yes. Uh, we've answered the – we've talked about the concerns, yes. Yes. So now it's shifted over to Mikata. Now Mikata will be great, and maybe, who knows, the White Sox can play a five foot seven center fielder one day. I don't know. Uh, anyways, Bill, <laughs> thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Jim Kane, and Jim is asking, do you think guaranteed rate could ever allow for or encourage a rowdy fan section similar to those seen in soccer stadiums? Songs, chants, drums, etc. I believe Miami has designated a section for similar purposes. They have. The Section 108 guys seem to do a good job bringing the party attitude to the games, even in lost seasons. Think Sox fans would be able to take a step further and inject more life into a stadium that has long been criticized for lack of fans and character. Would it even be a good idea or rather an off-putting distraction like the wave? I, you know, I tend to be pro fan noise, uh, pro organic, you know, fan inspired noise uh, as, as somebody who's, um, you know, been to games in Japan and in South Korea and seen the you know cheerleaders there with the uh, orchestrated chants and the in the bands the even road teams bring their own bands and put them in the corner uh, and, and play while their team is hitting um, it's a lot of fun and I found myself chanting and not exactly knowing what was said just following the syllables and hoping I was making some horrible mistake but it was fun and I you know I'm I'm for that atmosphere um, but I, I think it does have to be yeah, the White Sox can encourage it or they can allow instruments, whatever, you know, the, the implements of those noise to be brought in. But I think it does take a a fan-centric effort. And I think, you know, Miami makes a lot of sense because, you know, they have a lot of, you know, the population and such probably used to the um, experience in like the Caribbean series where the fans are just, you know, making music and <laughs> chants and uh, being very involved in the soundscape of the stadium the whole time and you know perhaps they want to uh you know, they have the idea to bring that in themselves and the marlins are saying okay we need all the help we can get go for it and i'm in, i want to see what that looks like and if that actually affects anything and even you know in an empty stadium or like you know, a mostly empty stadium like miami has it can just add something different and i think you know oakland has the same thing going uh the oakland fans in right field um they have a lot of fun out there. They have their own instruments. They um, you have kind of an impromptu band. Uh, they mess around with right fielders, and that's great. And so I think, uh, uh, you know, Section 108 guys are are good for that. You know, and they're, I guess, um, they illustrate the idea of, you know, fans doing it themselves and generating, the, making their own fun because the team isn't doing it for them. I think the one thing about the 108 is just that it's kind of tucked behind the foul pole. It's behind the 
patio, so it's like the, the, their ability to get close to the players and, and be part of the sound and, and be found on TV is a bit harder. So uh, I don't know. I'm not saying they should move to 106 or 103 or 104, but uh, you know, I think uh, being more visible and you know, and, and being able to be caught where the uh, the cameras are and where the players are and having that kind of more direct interaction and findable interaction uh, might be the next step. And uh, just an idea. <laughs> uh, I don't want to. You know, 108s thing. Maybe the White Sox should move 108. Uh, to right center, have it go 100, 101, 102, 108, 104. Hmm. <laughs> there you go. That way. <laughs> yeah. And then you could really kind of, that'd be kind of cool, you know, doing it that way. Just saying, uh, we're removing the party, but we're keeping the 108. That'd be kind of cool. So that'd be maybe one idea to make them more visible and make them more of a part of the, I guess, visual part. Even though I guess it's part of the idea that they, uh, you know, make the most out of the cheapest seats in the lower deck. I don't want to ruin that for him, but just an idea. Jim, I like your idea. I just think we're in the minority liking your idea. Because if the White Sox were to implement something like this, I could see the sales and marketing team getting a lot of complaints about noise and about how this is unnatural for the game of baseball. This isn't what I grew up with. You know, you have the OPOS crowd. Do you get off my lawn crowd angry that you have constant noise during the game of baseball that it ruins the romance of it oh but i mean at the park there is constant noise it's just piped in yes it's it's you know it's a constant stream of sound effects uh music stomp claps and i'm sure they Uh, would tell you they hate that too yeah but at least it's you know organic and it's fan inspired and it's Mm -hmm. you know uh, Especially when it comes to say like the, yeah, the the Caribbean series type noise, it's you know the the melting pot and or the uh, I guess the salad bowl. You know if you don't think that all these things mesh together, but either way, it's you know and uh, cultures meeting and, and and making their own space in the ballpark and you know and, and and bringing that sound into it. So it's cool and 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 I would like it, but I think it would have to be uh, fan driven rather than you know the White Sox can make room for it, but then the fans. You know, whether it's a group of them or whether it's you know, um, a 108 or a 108 type fan group that does it. And I think there's more, more than uh, or there's room for more than one fan group to have their own thing. And, you know, there's you know, left field, right field. You can have their own uh, fans can pick their own party. Uh, I, I like that idea. But no, I, I think especially with the White Sox and their fan base and the uh, I guess the demographics of the South Side, I think it could potentially work. Yeah, just everybody bring trumpets. That'd be fun. Uh, I don't recommend a big drum because that's what Cleveland does. Yeah, and that's I was trying to think like, am I annoyed by the Cleveland drum because of it's Cleveland? Is it because it's uh, Wahoo? You know, is it, you know, and everything mm-hmm. like that. I don't quite know. Yeah, there's a lot of baggage with the Indians fans in the outfield you know, over the years, and you know the the feathers and everything. So, not quite uh, sure that if if you took the drum, put it in a different. Uh, team you know and i think the a's have drums you know that's fine no but it's the drum jim yeah the drum so it would need to be more than a drum yeah it could be it would start with horns and then bring the drums underneath it yeah i'm for it i say do it because it gets pretty quiet when you're there even though they're trying to pump up the crowd and piping in noise and all of the seven second sound clips that they have in between at bats 
Uh, I, I, I agree with you, Jim. I just, I could see a large group of fans being just hating it. Uh, but it's either instruments or hearing people do the Ric Flair woo. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> Maybe this is what uh, uh, greases the skids for non-woos. Yes. In order to combat the woos, people need to bring in musical instruments. But it's a great idea, Jim. Greatly appreciate your guys' question. That will do it for this edition of P.O. Socks. Thank you guys so much for submitting your questions to us. If you have a future question or topic that you would like us to tackle on this show, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And again, help support the show and the website by becoming a friend of the podcast, signing up at patreon.com slash socks machine. Last I looked, we were up to 200 supporters. Yes. So I wanted to mention that <laughs> 200. I did not, uh, I didn't know exactly what to expect at the end of the first full season, but I don't think I expected 200. So thank you very much. 200 helping support us to grind through this 2018 season. That is awesome. Thank you guys so much and for all those that have been supporting us a lot of you have been supporting us uh since january i'm hoping that the additional content uh, that you get from us has made your support worthwhile so again thank you guys so much for allowing us to hit that milestone and if you're interested in getting more content from jim and i every single week from the podcast and from additional writings go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today and that will do it for this edition of the socks machine podcast I want to thank our guest dan zaborski from FanGraphs again for coming on the show and if you just discovered the podcast you can subscribe to the show in a variety of ways one is through itunes another is spotify you can listen to us in google podcasts and audioboom.com slash socks machine the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.